1 Samuel chapter 17 is where we are this morning. All right, this is one of the most famous passages in the Bible. So we're going to be dealing with David and Goliath. I've titled this morning Giant Faith because I am very creative. For you Texans, you can translate that as Big Huge Faith. But David has a... David becomes for us, as we were seeing just a minute ago, in regards to Jesus Christ being the King of Kings. David is that Old Testament example and image of the King of Kings in the Old Testament. He is the King after God's own heart. God gives him the promise that his son will sit on his throne for all eternity. When Jesus steps into human flesh, he is identified as the son of David, inheriting the kingship of the house of David, which is an an eternal promise. So again, Jesus Christ is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. But as we look at David's life in the Old Testament, he is to image the Messiah to us in a variety of ways. And in this passage that we're in, there's there's a tremendous foundation that we see in David's life in his calling and his anointing as king. So one of the things I want to mention is before we even get into this, I want everybody, forget about all of your children's ministry, childhood, cartoon figures of David and Goliath, because that's not what the Word of God has to communicate. I want you to get rid of all the silly illustrations that pastors have handed to you over the years, because it sounds funny, it sounds cool, it's kind of quaint and those kinds of things. And really, we're going to read the text. The text is long. The text is intentionally long by God because this is a way that reinforces the importance of this story in David's life and its position in the Word of God. But it's also long and filled with details because it's a way that creates images in your mind. This is a a story that was told audibly to cultures for generations and generations. We get stuck in our children's books and we get stuck in uh, the visual representation that we have in TVs and movies. But this, this story is to bring out your imagination. It's very long, the, the, the speeches that are given by Goliath and David, they're very long for the scene, the description of their armor, it's very long, it's intentionally long. So this is the goal for this morning. We're gonna read through the whole chapter without comments, and then the goal is to get back through it about halfway. If I'm, if I'm good and on task, which never happens, we could get through the whole thing. So my goal is to get through David's description of armor, and then we'll get into the New Testament because there's an incredible description of armor in Ephesians chapter 6. Let's read through this whole text. First Samuel 17 says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle, and were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Soko and Azekah and Ephes Daman. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a uh, bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. 
Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and his shield bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to battle. The names of the three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shema. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp, and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand, and see how your brothers fare, and bring back news of them. Now Saul... And they, all, and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp of the army as the army was going out to fight the Philistines and shouting for battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array against army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. Then he talked with them. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion of the Philistine, uh, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the army of the Philistines. And he spoke the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him. And were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the man who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his older brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, Why do you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride. 
in the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Is there not cause? Then he turned from him and, and from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Now when the words of David, which David spoke, were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You were not able to go up against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep, keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it, and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from a brook and put them in a shepherd bag and a pouch which he had, and his sling was in his hand. And he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it, and he struck the Philistine in his forehead, so that the stone sank down into his forehead, and he fell on his face on the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore, David ran and stood over the Philistine 
took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sharaim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in his tent. When Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of, arm, of his army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to David, whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Long story, yeah? There are a whole bunch of gold nuggets that we're going to pick up and look at one at a time. And then again, this is uh, the length of the story and all of its details and some of the circumstances. The, the purpose is to bring up a lot of questions for you. Like at the very end, why didn't Saul know whose David, whose dad David's was? Does that sentence make sense? Maybe. He doesn't know. There's, there's a reason, but why he doesn't know, it's supposed to create a question in your head so that you sit and that you think and meditate on the text on your own. That's the reason behind all of these details. But in the circumstance, last week we see, we've already seen uh, Saul rejected and removed as king of Israel. Last week we had Samuel come and anoint David as king. So we see David last week in his role as a shepherd, and then as he is coming to Saul to calm down his agitated psyche from the distressing spirit that the Lord sent to Saul, we also see David as a musician sitting in a psalm last week as we looked at David as a poet. So we had this description in chapter 16 that David is also a man of war, that he is a man of valor. We see that as, you know, the future writer of these accounts foreshadowing for us the character of David throughout all of his life. And David was a man of war throughout all of his life and all of the different lands that he conquered and the stability that he brought to the nation of Israel. But what was, the, what was going all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 8 when the nation of Israel is asking for a king, uh, a man as a king rather than God as a king, this rejection of God, their desire is for a man. They want a champion, not only to judge them, but they want a man who will take them out to war and will bring them back home from war in victory. And as we sat in the earlier text in regards to Saul, Saul performed that function. Don't lose the image of Saul. He is head and shoulders taller than all of the other men of the nation of Israel. Average height, roughly 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, in this time. So you put Saul, he's in, you know, 6'2", six, 6'3", six, he's a big guy, he's a strong guy, he's a man of war, and that begs the question in this text, why 
is Saul afraid? What's been removed from Saul? Holy Spirit. When Saul was anointed as king, the Holy Spirit came upon Saul. And we're told that he was a changed man on that day. God gave him a new heart and made him another kind of man. And we saw a couple of victories in his life. But as he has chosen to turn away from the Lord and reject the Lord, now the Lord has rejected him. And in that, in that rejection, God has removed that anointing, his Holy Spirit, from him. So Saul's courage is gone. So as the Philistines are coming to war, this scene is you have, if you know that you have the Sea of Galilee in the north, which feeds into the Jordan River, that feeds into the Dead Sea in the south. That's the Great Rift Valley. It's low, and that's on the east side of Israel. That rises very quickly into the hill country, to the mountains of Israel. They're not that high, but it's very hilly. It's very rocky. It's very dry. That leads down into these, this foothill area that is more green, lots more trees, that leads into this coastal plain that leads into the Mediterranean Sea. Where they are lined up for battle array, this is a valley that leads from the area of the Philistines. So modern-day Gaza, modern-day um, Tel Aviv there in the south of Israel. If you just follow a line directly to the east, it leads into this valley. And this valley has small foothills, kind of like Sawney Mountain, not as densely treed, but roughly that height. So you have the Philistines are on one mountain, the Jews are on another mountain. There's this valley of Elah in between that will lead up into, essentially into the hill country and up into Jerusalem. Bethlehem's about 15 miles from this scene. But you have to picture the scene. So here for 40 days, They've, they've, the Philistines have, you know, they're, they're gathering up their army. So the nation of Israel is gathering their army in response. They're now face-to-face -face in this opposition. And for 40 days, everybody is gearing up for war. Have you ever done anything for 40 days straight? Have you ever tried to diet for 40 days straight? Maybe fast for 40 days straight? Go to the gym, pray, read your Bible, whatever it is. Have you ever done something intentionally where you're thinking about it every day for 40 days? Now, take that thought and compound it with the stress and the threat of violence and the loss of your life. For 40 days, the nation of Israel is imaging Saul's fear says that they are greatly dismayed. They are, they, their confidence and their courage has been shattered by this opposing army. And it's shattering is this, this man, Goliath, that is coming. He's identified as a champion. The word, it's two words in the Hebrew. It's the, the word for man, and then it's this word for to stand in between. So here's a man for the Philistines, for the enemy that is to stand in between the Philistine army and the army of Israel as a champion. And whoever wins this single one-on-one uh, -on -one combat is going to be the representative who wins the war for all. Now the image that David is portraying in this scene is he's the man who stands in between for the nation of Israel. And the image that we're given is Jesus. Jesus is the man who stands in between. He stands in between you and the almighty God who created you. He stands in between you and the death that you deserve because of your sin. 
He stands in between you and every single obstacle that you have in your life that you would identify as a giant. This giant is very specific. It says that he's from the area of Gath. When you get into Numbers chapter 13, when the 12 spies are sent to spy out the land of Canaan, when they come back, what, who are they afraid of? The giants of the land, the descendants of Anak. The Anakim, are the, are, they're located there in Gath. So Goliath is a descendant of the Anakim, the giants in the Old Testament. Now we're told here in the text that he is six cubits and a span. So a cubit is supposed to be measured from your elbow to the tip of your finger. Roughly 18 inches is the average. That means this text is telling us that, that uh, Goliath is nine feet, nine inches. The Septuagint and Josephus and other manuscripts, they say that he was uh, four cubits in a span, which would put him at six nine. So we have a range of how tall Goliath is. His actual height does not matter. You can go and study out, uh, you know, the Guinness Book of World Records and documented height of different individuals. Um, the, high, the tallest guy in America, I think he's the tallest guy in recorded, you know, medical recorded provable history. I think he was eight foot six, but he died at the age of 22. He had an issue with his pituitary gland, which causes your body to continue to grow. There's all these different testimonies that you can sit in in regards to history and even in the current of people who are very tall. But the imagery that we have of the Old Testament, it's not just tall, it's also powerfully built. The description that we have of Goliath's armor is roughly 200 pounds. His coat of mail is 135 pounds. So when you talk about Goliath's size, so if all these numbers are correct, you're talking roughly a 500-pound man. Anybody want to go up against a 500-pound man? Just you, one-on-one? -on -one? Even if he's slow, you can hit him as hard as you want. You can hit him as hard as you want with a stick. He's not going to go down. Anybody watch the strongman competitions where these guys are 6'8", 6'9", big men? that would crush every single one of us, even if we came at them with a group. There's, there's an intimidation factor here. So he is physically intimidating. He is the man between, and God has called and appointed David for this moment to be the man in between, to be the king, to do what the king is supposed to do, which is to be our champion. And again, this is imaging Jesus Christ for us. So in application... And in your thought processes for your own life, what are your giants? Some of your giants are going to be those things of your personality that you don't like, that you haven't been able to do anything about it. For some of you, it may be sin issues. For others, it may be a relationship, an obstacle in your life. This will really communicate to you if you really stand in this obstacle that you have that you would identify as an immovable giant that can crush you. Where's your faith? Because again, this is, everybody's attention is on the man. Everybody's attention on, is on his height, his power, this man of war, and the emotion for the entire crowd of the army is fear and trembling. I can't do this. If I go, I'll die. 
all the different emotions for 40 days. And the imagery of 40 days comes up repetitiously in the Bible, but it's always in reference to a period of testing. First one, you have the flood. It's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. It's a judgment upon the earth. It's also a testing for those eight souls that are in the ark in regards to the judgment that God is pouring out and God's provision for them getting off of the ark. You see a 40-day period of time as Jacob's body's getting embalmed. Not too important there, but for Moses, two times. You have him going up on the mountain alone with the Almighty God, the true and living God, receiving from God what? Both times the law. But it's a period of not just a testing and an interaction between Moses and God. It's also a period of testing for the people who are down at the bottom. The first period of 40 days for Moses, the people rebelled. This is when they built the idol. This is when they immediately turned to idolatry. When Moses comes down, he throws the Ten Commandments down in anger, and then he intercedes on behalf of the people, and that leads into his second 40 days up on the mountain with God. In Numbers chapter 13, I already brought it up. When the spies go into the land to spy it out, how many days are they there spying it out? 40 days. It's a period of... It's a period of testing because those 12 spies come back with what? Ten of them come back with fear because of the giants, because of the obstacles, and because the people listened to fear, what happened? God sends them back into the wilderness. You're not ready to go into the promised land. And for 40 years, those 40 days become 40 years where the generation 20 years old and older, everybody dies of that generation, is not allowed into the promised land except the two spies that brought back the courageous report, Joshua and Caleb. I, I camp on this one because it was the fear of the giants of Anak, their unbelief, that fear and that trembling that kept them separated from their relationship with God. They pressed into their fear rather than pressing into faith. It is the exact same thing that the culture is going through as Goliath, a descendant of Anak, is standing there. And what is the culture pressing into? Fear. And like Joshua and like Caleb, here comes David as a hero getting people's eyes off of the circumstances and the obstacles and getting their eyes onto God. In the other 40 days, you have Elijah, as Elijah is fleeing from Jezebel and fear, and God provides for Elijah for 40 days in the wilderness. You have Ezekiel, who lays on his left side for 390 days. I hope he got up and took breaks, but as a judgment, when God tells him to flip over on his other side, it's for 40 days. It fulfills this 430-year period. Very specific, illustrative, prophetic uh, image that God is giving to the culture in regards to the judgment that he is handing down. But again, this specific 40-day period is called out. Another one is Jonah. When Jonah finally shows up to the Ninevites, what does he tell them? 40 days, you're going to burn. That was his heart. He didn't tell him to turn. He didn't want him to repent. God's given you 40 days, and he's going to bring destruction. And the people of Nineveh turn to uh, Jonah's chagrin. He didn't like that. And then in the New Testament, you have two different 40-day periods for Jesus. 
The first 40-day period, the Spirit drives him into the wilderness after his baptism to be what? To be tested, to be tempted by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus is without food. He is fasting. The enemy comes to him. The giant comes to him at the end of that 40-day period to test him, to tempt him. And he remains victorious in that temptation. Second 40-day period, after Jesus' resurrection, he manifests himself in the flesh over a 40-day period of time. It wasn't his testing, but it was a testing for those who had followed Jesus. They were fearful. They were doubting. They were confused. Is Jesus really the Messiah? He died why did the Messiah die? What does the scripture have to say about that? He rose again from the dead. I can see him. I can touch him. I am eating with him. What does the Old Testament scripture have to say about that? And then he ascended at the end of that 40-day period. So again, in this scene, this, it's, it's not just random words. There are intentional ideas that are being pulled out for us to look at and ask the questions of why again is God bringing about a 40-day period of testing? This direct link for, the, for this culture at this time, it is linking them back to the spies who went into the land and all the connections with this giant. But Goliath and the Philistines, what are they really engaging in? Psychological warfare. Anybody ever try and get into your mind? Does the devil ever try and get into your mind? Do you just get into your mind and your own flesh and you start telling yourself all of these kind of stories that well up fear? They drive you away from the Lord, away from his character, away from his promises, and all you can see is the giant. And again, what this, what this story is pulling out for us and in, in how we can apply it in our life is to trust in the Lord. Even when you have a giant before you, God is going to give you the power to overcome whatever obstacle may be in front of you. However, he's just not going to remove it out. David's got to get up and do the hard work, yes? So this is all the scene set up of the armies in opposition, this Philistine presenting himself for 40 days, the psychological warfare that is going on, the culture is shattered, they are greatly afraid, and then the scene shifts back to David. Again, at the end of chapter 16, David is there as a musician providing music to calm down the agitated Saul when this distressing spirit comes upon him. But we're told in this scene that he, we don't know how much time has transpired, but he's able to go back home and return to Saul as he's taking care of his dad's sheep and taking care of family duties, coming back to Saul when he's needed. So there's some back and forth there. Jesse is sending David to go and take supplies to his brother and to the army. They've been there for an extended period of time. David, go and see how your brothers are doing. Go and see what's going on with this war and bring back news. Bring back assurance, a pledge to me is what he's asking for. Now what's really cool to pull out of this section is David is witnessing for the first time what the army of Israel has been witnessing for 40 days. So the army's worn out. They're fatigued by it. They're stressed by it. Goliath is coming out in the morning and then the evening. Again, this, this would be, to me, that's the time that's 
that's the time that the priests were to sacrifice to God both morning and evening. My understanding would be that Goliath in his defiance of God, of having a fist against the living God, the God of the nation of Israel, that he's intentionally coming out at the time of the morning and the evening sacrifice. David's run 15 miles in a day, right? He's shown up. He's probably there at the time of the evening sacrifice when once again everybody is showing up. Everybody's all geared up for war because here comes the champion down to present himself again and to call out the Jews. And you got to be ready for war. You don't know when you're going to go. So everybody's geared up once again, and they're rallying themselves. They're shouting. They're yelling. They're, they're ready for the fight. Then the Philistine comes and does his whole spiel again, and what do the people do? They flee, and David's witnessing it. David's hearing the exact same words. But David, again, he's, he is one man, among a thousand who is hearing it from a different lens and a different filter and a different perspective. And this young man, however old he is, he's, he's, he's young enough that his beard's not fully grown in. This young man hears the words of this defiance not as a personal affront, but that guy, that uncircumcised Phil, Philistine, he's blaspheming God. And he is standing in an opposition to God. And he is in defiance and he is taunting and agitating the armies of the living God, not of the broken idols of the Philistines. Remember earlier on in Samuel, the God of the Philistines has already been decapitated. Dagon was knocked over by God and the head of that statue was cut off. Their gods are nothing. So David is interacting with the exact same information as everybody else, but from the filter of faith. And this, again, this is the encouragement of this account. This is who David is to uh, image for us. And ultimately, as we look at Jesus Christ, do you think that Jesus in his flesh had anything to fear about? We're told in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus was greatly distressed. And he, in communication to his father, was asking for this cup of crucifixion, this cup of the wrath of God, to be removed from him. We're told that he was stressing in a way that his sweat was like great drops of blood. Fear. But even in the midst of that fear, faith and obedience. And again, this is what David is to image to us. David, as he's getting information, he hears what the Philistine says. He's hearing it from a different filter. He starts asking questions of the crowd as he's already, you know, he's had a brief introduction with his brothers. He hears the Philistine. Now his attention is turned away from them, asking all these questions. And then the oldest brother. Now remember last week we talked about Eliab as the firstborn brother. He was passed over by God. He was passed over by the prophet of God. And his youngest, smallest brother was the one who was anointed in the prior chapter. Do you think he has any animosity towards David? Absolutely. Because what's his question of David? Why are you even here, you little brat? Because he's, he's not, he's thankful for the food. He's thankful for David to be the little errand boy to take care of the sheep. Come bring me food while I'm a man of war. Now you go back home to daddy and go away. Why are you asking questions, 
you arrogant little cuss. You know, think of the words that he would be saying as an older brother and the things that he's got, has going on in his heart. He calls David, he says, I know your pride, David. And this word for I know your insolence of heart, I know the poor quality of your heart is what Eliab is saying about David. Now, are Eliab's words true? Because what has God already said about David's heart? There's a man with a heart that's for me and that's after me and it is pursuing me and it is thinking about me. And Eliab, his perspective is, David, you're proud and your heart is of poor quality. Do, the, do you think those words hurt David? Of course they did. Do judgmental words from your family members hurt they probably hurt a lot more than a stranger's harsh words yeah again this is this is we all press into this we think we know a lot about the hearts and minds and characters of others that we really don't and this is why we're told to out of our heart jesus teaches us our mouths are going to speak yes we need to have discernment when it comes to words and actions but I don't know what's really going on between you and God. I don't know what God has been doing to prepare you for who he needs you to be today and what he's doing in your life so that you'll know him and trust him for the future events that he is preparing you for in this life until you see him face to face. I can offer you all kinds of judgments about you, and I guarantee most of them are going to be off. Eliab's offering of his vantage point on David's heart, it's, it's off because Eliab is already sitting in his pain and his hurt. He is the firstborn of the brothers. He's supposed to be the head of the family underneath David, but here God has chosen the youngest brother. And we're told later on in the Psalms that God identifies David as his firstborn. Again, this is a title for Jesus in the New Testament, and the idea is preeminence of first as in, again, as in preeminence, not in order of birth, is the whole idea when Jesus is called the firstborn son of God. It's not that he was created, it's that he is preeminent above all. That's the imagery that is being conveyed. But David looks at his brother and says, what, what have I done now? Because you can tell that there's been contention in this relationship. But David's looking at, is my, are my inquiries not without cause? There is a man defying the armies of our living God. And nobody is doing anything about it. And everybody is quaking in their boots. Is there not a cause for me to ask questions? Is there not a cause for me to encourage others to take up faith in God? And I love this because it happens in the New Testament too. We, usually we don't need to answer the questions of those who want to poke at our chest. Sometimes we need to be rebuked. Sometimes we need to be questioned in our life. But how often Jesus answers questions with questions. Because again, David doesn't need to answer Eliab's accusation. So he, he answers the question with his own question. Is there not a cause for someone to be the man in the middle and to be God's man in this moment? Yes or no is what David is questioning. 
and the rumors, the rumbling of the crowds as David is asking these questions. He's gotten everybody's attention, and these words have made their way to Saul. So now, David, come and have a conversation with Saul. And what does Saul do in his wonderful encouragement to David? David, what are you talking about? And David's encouragement to Saul is let no man's heart fall. Let nobody's heart collapse and fail. Do you think that Saul is sitting in conviction of his own failed heart and fallen and collapsed heart in this moment? Saul's job is to put on his armor as king and go out and stand as the man in between but his heart has failed him. His courage is gone. And David bringing the words into Saul's life is exactly what Saul does not want to hear because he doesn't want to hear the conviction. He doesn't want to hear the reminder. So as he's listening to this youth who has played the harp in his ear to calm him down, let no man's heart fail because of him, I'll go. How do you think Saul feels in the moment? This young, wispy beard teenager standing face to face with this manly man, large Saul, looking down at him. And it has to be convicting to Saul. And this is, this is, this is these are, um, if anybody else's faith convicts you of your faith as hanging out in fear, don't let that be a stone to throw at your brother and sister. Let that be an encouragement to you. Press into the courage of other people's faith. That's why we have so many different accounts in the word of God of peoples whose faith are huge, are giants, and all you have to do is sit in Hebrews chapter 11 for a bunch of those descriptions. By faith, here is what these heroes did in the Lord's name through his power. Let those, let those testimonies be an encouragement, not something that turns you away. But as Saul is looking at David and listening to David's words, he's saying, David, you're not able. You're not qualified. You're too skinny. I can see the size of this giant across the field. If you go and stand as the man in between, you are not able to do what needs to be done. You're going to get killed. And therefore, we're going to become the servants of the Philistines is the consequence if David loses. But David lists out some of his qualifications as a shepherd and his courage and his fear. I don't know if any of you have ever killed a wild animal with your bare hands before, but good for you. Probably a lot more courageous than me. I usually run the other direction, especially if it's a snake. Right? Okay, just making sure. But here, David, again, he's demonstrating his courage. His responsibility as a shepherd is the protection of the flock. Whenever a lion came, whenever a bear came, and again, both of these were animals that were in this era, in that time, or in this area, in that time, David took up courage and went and freed the animals from these predators in protection of the flock. A major idea to press in here is the whole idea of God preparing you in history 
for you, an event that he may have for you in your life today, and that understanding what is going on in your life today. It's not only for your relationship with God in this moment, yes, but it's also always a preparation for something down the road. And there's often times where God causes us to repeat testing and to repeat experiences. Sometimes it's because we need to learn by reminder, and sometimes it's because we keep failing the test, keep failing that test of faith, keep failing that test of trust in the Lord, and he's always seeking to bring about a relationship with him. Trust me. I am who I say that I am. I am the true and living God. I am not a false idol that does not speak. I speak. I have always been. I will always be. This is plan A. I have all power. I am with you. Stand in me in the power of my might that we're going to get in in a minute. David's great statement of faith to me in this whole section comes out of verse 37. David says, the Lord, he delivered me already historically, and it is your historical relationship with the Lord that, that brings its weight into your relationship today. The living God that delivered me in the past is the living God that is going to deliver me on this day. He has brought me here for this. I will stand in the gap, and I am going to win because I am here for his name, not for my own personal glory. Saul says, all right, the Lord be with you. Good luck. Close him in his own armor. This is where we're going to end this whole idea of he's, you know, Saul's a big man. David is not. He gets clothed in Saul's armor, and it's literally, it's not that he tried to walk, it's that he couldn't walk in Saul's armor. This isn't tested. This isn't efficient. Your armor does not fit me. Therefore, he goes out there with the implements in his hand that God has already trained him in. And we'll get, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 gives us this whole idea of our spiritual armor. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong, not in yourself, but be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You want to, as we go through this description, keep the image of David going out in the clothes that he showed up in. He's going out with his shepherd's staff and his shepherd's sling in his, in his hand, things that he has already been trained in. But more important than anything, he is going out in faith and trust in exactly who God is. So this New Testament principle and ideas, Paul is giving the Ephesian church encouragement that, that picture is played out in David's life. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The words of Goliath. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against princes and principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. Again, that image that Goliath is providing. Against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. 
Stand therefore, having, your way, having girded your waist with truth. Now in this imagery, focus on, don't focus on the, um, you know, like having the, a belt on, but focus on the definition of the words that God has provided for us as armor, because this is the armor that David was clothed in as he is presenting himself to Goliath. You're, you're uh, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, which is through faith in Christ, having your feet shod, shod your feet with the preparation, the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Take the helmet of salvation. God has delivered you from your sins. He will deliver you from your sins. He will give to you eternal life. And the sword of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, which is the Word of God, praying conversation with God, both communicating and listening, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And go on there and pray for God. Worship team, come on up. Everybody else, I'm going to ask you to stand. And turn back a page in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 15. Tony requested this morning that we go through our Ephesian prayer because it's been quite a while. But I want to invite you all to stand. As I pray this prayer over you, you pray this prayer over all of us also. For this reason, we bow our knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.